Welcome to another episode of No Challenges Remaining, episode 93. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined as always by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and yourself? I'm doing pretty well. I'm in Happy G- December. Happy December to you, too. Happy off-season. We're, like, right in the middle of it, which is kind of sad. That, like, it's just... Sad because last week I felt like we just started it. So. I know. I feel like just <laughs> over the horizon, there's an Australian sun coming up, and it will be scorching. Yes. And all too soon. Although the weather forecast says it's not supposed to be 160 degrees this year. Yeah, I saw that. How do they know what the weather's going to be in they like don't know. seven weeks? They, don't, they know. don't know. They don't know. They don't know. I mean, it's a nice thing to say. Yeah. Better than saying, don't come to Melbourne, you die. <laughs> but I feel like that's pretty much just what is implied <laughs> at all times Probably. with respect to Australia. Probably. But we're, we have plenty of times to brace ourselves for that and the holidays in the meantime, which require different sorts of bracing, I guess. So on the show, we'll talk about a bunch of mailbag type things that have collected in our Santa sack of goodies over the course of the season in the last couple of weeks. And we'll enjoy having the barrel a little less full, I guess, which means there's more room for shenanigans. I don't know shenanigans bring on the shenanigans i was gonna say monkeys in a barrel but i feel like monkeys in a barrel shenanigans fun same thing right i suppose all right let's go with that let's start the shenanigans so speaking of shenanigans the first thing we're gonna get to is the international premier tennis league IPTL, which is going on uh, now for the first time. It had a lot of hype for quite a couple years now before it actually started. And now it's here with four teams. Courtney, what do you make of what we've seen from the IPTL so far? And if it's exceeded expectations, lived up to, is it weird, not weird? What to make of this? On a, on a, on an anthropological level, mostly, just because it's so weird looking. I want to, I just want to study it. I want to <laughs> study it, you know? Yeah, no, I I mean, so the IPTL, I mean, conceptually, if you could imagine world team tennis, but placed in Asia mm-hmm. in front of pretty packed out crowds yeah. with all of the biggest names in tennis, as opposed to, with all due respect to world team tennis, the Bobby Reynolds and uh, Abigail Spears, yeah. Abigail Spears of, of the world. So yeah, so that's effectively what it is. It's meant to be a, a, a and I, I make the world team tennis comparison just by way of background, because it is supposed to be a competitive endeavor. That's what they want it to be. The uh, organizers spearheaded by Mahesh Bupati, who's kind of the, the, the brain behind all of this, and mm-hmm. who's really, I think, for the most part, made it pretty successful as, as an as a entity so far. Um, I've watched a bit of it. It's incredible. It's very entertaining. The players are having a blast. It's fun, you know, obviously. Obviously, to see the guys and the girls interact and to cheer each other on and, you know, all the stuff that that you would expect from an exhibition. So that's really where the IPTL still falls for me. And I think that that what Chris Kermode said when he was asked about it this fall in Shanghai about the IPTL, he referred to it as, as, as a glorified exhibition, that the ATP wasn't entirely concerned about it. You know, I suspect that the WTA feels the same way, if not maybe a little bit more strongly about not wanting it necessarily to be there. But hey, I mean, if the players want to take a paycheck instead of spending the time to rest before the new year, 
that's fine. Will I have tissue on hand when they or if they cite exhaustion and injury or fatigue in uh, in Australia? Probably not. So, you know, it's kind of all those sorts of things. But for me personally, I think it's great entertainment. I think that it's delivering to the fans that are in Asia that are, yeah. are paying good money to, to watch this thing. Do I think, though, that just because something is entertaining that it's relevant in any way? No, I don't think so. And it's just not relevant to me. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think for me it's exceeded expectations just because I have to remember how low our expectations were for quite a while. I mean, there was a lot of doubt over the past 18 months as if whether or not this thing would even happen. I mean, because the league kept shrinking. You know, there's ambiguity over the schedule, who was playing when. There were big money promises and these huge star-studded rosters that – seem to be almost impossible possible to deliver on. And with the exception of, I guess, Nadal, they really have delivered on everything. And they replaced him with Federer, so that's pretty even trade at worst. It's been, you know, it's an exhibition completely, but it has been good for the fans in these markets, and that is good for them. I mean, it's harmless. I don't see how it's hurting the sport on any level. Have fans in Manila, and even from like the WTA perspective, if somebody sees Maria Sharapova playing in Manila and then becomes a big Sharapova fan, I think that's a net win for women's tennis as a organism and i think that could translate over to wta fandom i think it's fine i think it's completely not relevant who wins i mean there was i saw something like the singapore slammers still haven't gotten their first win will they break through and i was just like and they were like the article was like really dour like this team has failed us like what is going on singapore is ashamed i was like are you serious like this is a team thing that's yeah, yeah. anyway that part i i don't get i don't like the the legends part of it yeah um well I get why it's there, but it makes it feel even exoier, which I realize is not something they're shying away from, and that's fine. There is something kind of cool though about like I like to the to this day I would pay money to see Fabrice Santoro play. Like the other, I think in the opening weekend they had uh, I don't know who plays for what team or like whatever. Nor but, should you. That's uh, fine. Yeah, I just it's just not something that concerns me. They had like Goron playing uh, Pat Rafter, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. That is cool. You know, yeah, like okay. that's I mean, fine. You know, there there are things. I think the funny thing is when you have like a Leighton Hewitt still playing like the pros, like and while his like legend compatriots are playing in the legends, I think is kind of funny. I think that the reason the reason why I I take not issue with, but I blanch a little bit whenever anybody wants to try and turn this into something that or discuss the IPTL as as though it's something competitively relevant is that it's so obvious in certain teams that certain pairings or certain players are getting playing time not because it's the best opportunity for the team to win that whatever set Mm -hmm. but because it's what the fans want to see which is great for the fans (laughs) that's an exhibition but there's no reason you should be fielding andy murray and maria sharapova as a mixed doubles team that's the one thing i wish i'd seen i want to go back and try to watch that in its entirety it is incredible it is so bad it is so bad (laughs) um i mean bless her heart maria sharapova she marched out there again for mixed i mean she did it twice so she was game she went out there and it was great and it was fun but again it's something that i would want to see if i came to be like entertained but the fact that they fielded that team kind of makes me think well if my team loses I can't really be mad because <laughs> yeah, no. they didn't actually try their hardest. Right. To win. No, exactly. And that's the thing that like world team tennis comparing used to have the legends part mixed in. It's just a regular thing. Like the New York team would have John McEnroe playing men's singles while having mm-hmm. say Robert Kendrick sitting on the bench, who was probably like a top hundred ish player at the time. So I guess the way they have it segregated into its own event is fine. 
I do think having it be six games instead of five, as it is in World Team Tennis, uh, makes it a lot longer. I do like that slightly abbreviatedness of World Team Tennis, but overall, I think it's really harmless. It seems the whole thing seems like a big excuse to get weird permutations of tennis selfies. I mean, like, so people it, are taking well, selfies constantly. It's it's a little out of control. It's out it's of starting, control. It's starting to get old real fast, and you know how it is. Like we've seen this in many different like memes and yeah. fads and like whatever with like tennis players that the minute something like one thing blows up, they all do it for the next six months. Yeah, sort of thing. But um, I'm bummed though that you haven't had an opportunity to watch it because there are a few of the rule tweaks that are entirely interesting. Like the happiness point. The happiness PowerPoint. <laughs> That's a thing. Explain that, that, explain that to people who it might not know. I know what that is, so, but it, it's so it's remarkable. So the happiness PowerPoint is basically if you imagine like an American football, like like a challenge flag, right? Uh-huh. So you get one per match, like per set, you know, right? No, uh, I can't remember specifically. I think it's per set, really? Not, That's a not lot of happiness power match, right? The whole entire night, you only get one. You think? Dude, to double down like that, I'm, I'm, well, you want me to look it up right now? <laughs> it's okay. I really don't care. Okay, go ahead if you want. I'm looking it up. Okay. Here, oh, challenges remaining. We get our happiness PowerPoint facts right. We have no challenges remaining, but we do have Google. Yeah. Uh, about? I don't know. <laughs> Please narrate your navigation through the IPTO okay. website if you want. First of all, this website is bunk. It's not good. It doesn't actually format okay uh uh-huh uh-huh oh okay so ben is correct (laughs) the happiness powerpoint you get one per set and it means that if you call it so any team can call it that this is going to be a happiness powerpoint the point is actually worth two points yeah so what you typically see is that that teams are using it at obviously when they're at 30 in the score of typically an important game, genu- generally the, the last game. Okay. Or potentially, basically where they can turn it into a match point. Oh, okay. See what I mean? So, like, if you're up, if you're serving at, like, 5-4 and you're at 30-40, so you're facing break point. Oh, If you're the okay, serving yeah. team, you can call the happiness power point. And if your guy serves an ace, you win the, you win the set. Gotcha. Right. So so that's one thing that's kind of funny and it's it's worked out pretty well. It's it's amusing. And like the players don't really understand the rules and neither did the umpires. Like the first night the umpire called a let, like yeah. reflexively, and there's no lets in IPTL. The other thing is that there's a two minute sh- or a five minute shootout. <laughs> <laughs> if the score reaches five five, then there is a five minute shootout and whoever wins the most points in five minutes wins. <laughs> what? So wait, so wait, so wait. Which is so rock and jock. Like, it's such a rock and jock MTV, like, rule. Like, to ask for sheer and utter chaos. And the first time that I saw it happen was, I think, in doubles. And it was Curios playing against whoever. And he was, like, he would just, like, take the ball and, like, serve it. No one was ready. Did it count? He was, like, literally spinning the ball in. Everybody was still moving. The crowd was still tall. It was just absolute insanity. It did not look like tennis. It wasn't even good. It just was sheer panic. That's pretty amazing. Kudos to them for coming up with that rule. Exactly. It's like, let's just have a shootout. Like, how do you have a shootout? Here's how we do it. It made no sense. Then there's also a shot clock. Yeah, I heard about that. The IPTL. And I don't know if it's still this way, but at least for the first weekend, the shot clock, when it started to count down like the last five seconds or something like that, it was actually audible. 
Oh, like a blue, blue. Yep. Blue, oh, hmm. Okay, which is annoying. And then on top of that, like sometimes they wouldn't like turn it off right away. So even if the player it was like starting to beep and the player would serve well within the time, it kept beeping <laughs> through the point. <laughs> Anyways, it was undercooked to say the least. And I've only watched it in the first weekend. But yeah, I mean, but like I said, I find it totally entertaining. I just, at the same time, don't feel compelled to watch it because feeling like if I don't watch it, I miss something important. Like it's purely entertainment yeah. as opposed to like a tournament. Even if it's 250, you wake up in the middle of the night, you watch it because whatever happens does have relevance on the tour. So that's my issue with it being a league and people trying to boost it into being this competitive thing. I'm like, right. it's really not. It's an XO. And also, I just need rest. Like I, the last thing I want to do with all due respect to tennis, which I like quite a bit. I don't need to see it in December. Like just yeah. being someone who follows the tour, which is long enough already. Giving myself a little vacation from it is healthy for both of us, I think. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Sure. So we got a few questions that relate to some of the late-breaking news about the recent coaching carousel moves. Um, Allegria asked us in general about the coaching carousel, and we got more specifically, though, we should talk about the news today that Madison Keys has swooped in and picked up Wim Fissette recently paired with Simona Halep and to be one of her two coaches working alongside Lindsay Davenport and she will split the two mostly it seems along geographic boundaries but also will work with both the slams so this is a big big uh, play by Madison what, your, what were your thoughts when you heard the news Courtney I was impressed yeah, me too. I was impressed I it, it, it's a total coaching swag hire like you know I remember trying to think like maybe when Sloan hired Anna Cone. Even when Laura hired Laura Robson hired Selzko Cryon, like it felt like those were like swag hires. Okay. You know, like, oh geez, like you're really backing your talent. You're going big, even though you're still pretty young. So so it, generally I like it. I like but I also like on the flip side what it says about Madison, you know, because these are two obviously well renowned well, at least in Fazette's case, a coach, Lindsay's case, a former you know, Grand Slam champion player. Yeah who are backing Madison, who have this time and they can, I mean, especially with Wim, let's, I mean, once he split with Simona, he had, he could go with Stevens, he could go with Sloan, he could go with obviously Eugenie Bouchard, who's just been, uh, just is now coachless um, after Saviano ditched. Madison already has Lindsay, so it wouldn't even be like a full-time gig to the extent that a coach is looking for a full-time gig. Yeah, there's like a lot of different players. A Red Vonska, who's like apparently about to s- – is set to announce a, a a coaching consultant. A mystery legend. Um, yeah, ex- ex- exactly. A mystery legend. Stop! We interrupt this regularly scheduled. <laughs> <laughs> no challenges <laughs> remaining. <laughs> Podcast for a breaking news alert. Courtney, live on Monday – Agnieszka Ravonska just revealed that her legend hire was Martina Navratilova, 18-time slam champ, many more in doubles, general legend person. I think legend was not an underselling for from no. Vikarovsky there. What do you make of this hire when you first heard about it? I think it's fantastic. I think that it's it's great on a number of different levels. First is that it shows that Aga is hungrier for more. Yeah. 
I think that there's there's some you know there's some interpretation that could be and which is totally understandable like you know she's a top 10 player I think a top 10 finish in six of the last seven years or something like that you know making good money and she doesn't have to play under a ridiculous amount of pressure and I don't know if we all really expect a ton from her given how under powered she is compared to her competition so there was kind of a sense of well you know Aga Radvanska could kind of just have herself a nice tennis life yeah you know and, and not not really kill herself trying to to be ambitious and, and really collapse under the weight of ambition and so this move really does seem to me to be be a step forward it's a proclamation that she expects more from herself that she wants more from herself that she wants to perform better at the majors specifically which is where she's really really fallen short in her career so I don't know I mean I think that it's just a great hire across the board and as you alluded to I'm glad that it didn't fall short of all the hype yeah, I was worried it would be Novotna or something. Right, like something kind of like, yeah, I mean, technically she's a legend who won a slam. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. but like... Although, but, as, but as the... I said in Singapore, with regards to the dearly respected Eva Maioli, I'm not sure that winning a slam and legend are synonymous always. This is true. Yeah. This is why it could have been very, very underwhelming. It could have gone many different ways. And, you know, I think she, if it wasn't going to be like a Martina Hingis, which I think is obviously the 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 easiest pairing that we can see for a Redvanska, I think that uh, in in practicality, Navratilova is actually the better, the better choice here. Just because you don't want, just because, I don't know. I mean, like Martina Hingis and Aga would just be like, That'd be so echo chamber. Yeah, it would. And like, not- you should be so creative. It's like, yeah, I should be creative. And like, you know what I mean? Like, at least you get the sense that Navratilova can pull her out of her comfort zone and maybe make her make the adjustments that she needs to make in order to, across the board, make her game better. That's what I think I respect a lot about this hire from Redvanska is that it's a very, it's not a comfortable hire. I mean, because Navratilova is not going to be someone who's going to half-ass this job whatsoever. She's going to really dedicate herself to it. I mean, I don't know if you saw a quote from her already that she was like already staying up late and like losing sleep, excited over returning to competition and battle and stuff. So that's pretty intense from Navratilova, and that's not going to subside. And I do think that could be uncomfortable for Radwanska, who's not someone who I see is always, at least visibly, it's hard to tell with her. Because she emotes a little, but I don't see her brimming with like competitive fire all the time. And especially, and you know, her she's a good practicer, but not known as like someone who's a complete workaholic either per se. Um, whereas Navratilova totally was. Navratilova totally. And the, what I was sort of thinking, just to encapsulate it in my head, was that Navratilova is the one who totally revolutionized the importance of fitness in the game. And Redwanska has a sponsorship from Cheesecake Factory on her visor. Yeah, exactly. So, there, that could be some sort of a um, a sticking point for one of them or both or try to see where they can meet in the middle if possible on that because they definitely have sort of different attitudes towards what we see as their approaches to their careers, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I feel like with Redvanska, I've always, I mean, I think I've said this a gazillion times on this podcast and it's something that I've always really harped on, I think, in the way that I write about her is that as much as you look at her and you see a person who looks fit. Obviously, I think that any, I don't know, like for me, well, I'm not going to talk for anybody else. I know for me personally, like I would love to have August figure. Like she looks like she's fit. She looks, you know, strong and limber and she has like um, um, good hands and feel and, you know, all these sorts of things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that she is as fit as she could be. 
with her body type and you get the sense that you know never Navratilova will demand more and and one thing that has always been a problem for Radvanska throughout her career especially at the majors and at big tournaments as well is that it takes so much energy for her and so much uh physicality to get to the later stages of tournaments that when that by the time she gets there she completely underperforms yeah. She really struggles. We saw that Indian Wells final really should have won, lost to Panetta, injury was totally injured. We've seen it at uh, the Australian Open. She just physically was off after, you know, kind of that emotional high of beating uh, Azarenka, blown off the court by a Sibylkova. Yeah, so we've seen this happen time and time again. So I would love to see that from a Navratilova to, to kind of convince her, actually, you need to get stronger so that your body can withstand the rigors of the of of a season. Yeah, and see if she immediately hires a trainer in this short run too, then we would know that would be already showing some Navratilova fingerprints. Do you think that this will? Does this? Do you think this increases her chances of winning a slam? Um, no, not necessarily. Yeah, I, um, I agree. I think it's good. I don't think it's guaranteed to work. No, not at all. As much as it could be great, I mean, it's one of those things. Coaching is. You can't ever really know until it starts. And look, I mean, Aga can get better. I mean, she can she can obviously improve her game under Navratilova. That doesn't mean, though, that peak Redvanska could win a major. Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, it depends on the matchups. It depends on a lot of other external factors. I think we've always said that about Aga is that it, it takes a little bit more luck for her to find herself into late stages. A draw would have to break open. And they have broken open, and she hasn't been able to take advantage of them. There's no reason why she couldn't win an Australian Open this year or win Wimbledon, uh, what was it, last year? Yeah. The Bartoli year. There's no reason she shouldn't be in those finals, if not right there on the brink of, of, of winning a major. So she needs, you know, things can't break her way, but she does need a little bit of help. But hopefully this kind of... I don't know, help... I can't see that this is going to be bad, put it that way. Yeah, I don't think so. Unless it's a complete... For some reason, it's a complete personality clash and they don't make it to Indian Wells or something. I mean, they could... I think it's so long as they can work together, I think can only really help. Because Radwanska has seemed a little bit to hit a plateau. And so, I, yeah. more than anything, the, the eagerness to try to get better is something that I really think... Um, reflects well on Radwanska at this point. Quickly, this is also part of a larger... We just talked about on the show, we talked about uh, Madison hiring Lindsay, and previously also... is Does Andy Murray get credit for this, is what I'm asking? Sud- I give Andy Murray all the credit in the world for everything, but continue. Su- suddenly, female coaches are in. After Billie Jean King was saying, oh, we need more female coaches, suddenly Andy Murray steps up, and so does keys and so does uh radvanska and i think after having zero slam winning coaches working in the women's game or and sorry in on the in the pro game full-time now we have three in a pretty short uh times time frame so he's a he's a trendsetter that andy he does he is he just sees you know he just sees it clearer than anybody else does yeah i mean it's exciting right i mean it adds a level of intrigue to a bunch of different players adds a few more storylines we saw what happened this year when the guys started to hire all these celebrity coaches i mean that just from a coverage perspective all of a sudden you were like running around and chasing down trying to get quotes from edberg and what does edberg think about this and what does becker think about this and you know from what i understand never to live will only be working with aga at the slams um in addition to like training blocks maybe but she's not like she's going to be like a full-time traveling coach but i could be wrong on that we don't have a ton of detail right on on how the coaching relationship is going to play out 
but you know, it, it, it'll just be nice to have Martina around and, and to be kind of relevant and on a competitive scale and to get her, yeah, um, to get her connected to this generation. And I felt like it was something yeah. that she has wanted for a while. I mean, I think she's been yeah. sort of trying to find the opening to break in. And I think this is a pretty, pretty cool one. I can't think of any player off the top of my head on the women's side who would be a naturally better fit. I guess Kvitova is the obvious one for Navratilova mm-hmm. because they're both Czech and they're both lefties and they're both on Wimbledon. But in terms of game, I don't think they have that much in common. So this could be cool. It'll be interesting to see Radvanska suddenly a much more interesting player in 2015. No, no kidding. Yeah. There we go. And then we now return you to the rest of the show. <laughs> Anyway, there's just a lot of players out there who are incredibly talented, ranked in the top 10, who he could probably like ship his services to really easily. And so the fact that he's backing Madison Keys, I think, is is quite a um, a rubber stamp on her talent and potential. I completely agree. I think this is overdue from her on some level. I think for a while she had coaching that didn't match her potential. I mean, she was working mostly with various USDA coaches. And for someone thought of as really a next big thing, I think this move is a long time coming. And it's a great sign from her that she's really saying, okay, this is it. This is the time where I make my move. I'm ready. Let's do it. Because even though she had the Eastbourne win last year, I thought in general her acceleration over the course of 2014 wasn't quite what I thought it could have been. Uh, She had some pretty bad losses at uh, various Grand Slams, I believe, or at least at the U.S. Open to Krunich and in general, just had a bunch of early crashes. who then beat Kvitova and then almost beat Azarenka. Let's put she, the part, player in context. I watched that match. That match was not good by Madison at all. It wasn't. It wasn't a good match for Madison at all. But I'm just saying, like, Krunich played better after. Not I don't to think scoff eh. that she lost to Krunich. I'm scoffing. Watch I'm not. Scoff. I wouldn't scoff in the context of not scoffing. No. Anyway, I, I do think that Madison did need to make this move, and I do agree with you that it shows a lot of belief from Lindsay and Wim that she is the one to watch and I totally think that this will be a, a great thing for her I think personality wise these are good people for her well in terms of game especially with Lindsay because they play pretty similar power based games they're not people who want to get in long rallies by any extent and with Wim Wim is a very nice guy Madison's super nice I can't imagine her working well with some sort of taskmaster type person I think she needs someone with a little bit of a softer hand and I think she gets set with Wim so overall I was pretty impressive hire and I think it's pretty good matchmaking work. 100% agree and and I definitely agree with you that that this was de- definitely needed. It really felt that for a while she was like a varsity kid being coached by JV coaches, yeah. not to say that USTA coaches are JV, they're very talented, but at the end of the day, you need a coach who is dedicated to you um, you know, and just you and that you're not like kind of sharing them with a team of other people. And, you know, there comes a point in tennis where you have to be selfish and you have to back your talent. And I think that this is a, a very good move by her and a very professional move by her. So completely. Yeah. We got it's a question fun. that involves Jeannie from Game Set Tweets asks us, or sorry, that involves Madison, uh, asks us peak Jeannie, Madison and Laura, who has the best game and who will win the most slams? Uh, I'll start off by saying that I think it's Madison, even though she's it's like a shown the less least at the pro level in singles of the three. Madison's upside, I think, is huge. Unlike Jeannie, who I think has some technical liabilities and seems a little bit uh, shaky on her technique, Madison has times where everything looks perfect. And the, those glimpses, as short as they have been, <laughs> give me more faith in her upside than uh, what Jeannie has, where Jeannie seems like she's really 
kind of gotten a surprising amount of juice out of a not very juicy game. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does make sense. I mean, I, I would agree. I think that, that the reason why I would tip Madison peak Madison as well is I think that she's, she's a bit of a better athlete than Laura Robson is, I think serve wise, uh, you know, but not as good of an athlete as a Bouchard necessarily. Okay. Serve wise, I think that she has obviously one of the best serves in the game already. Can only improve and get more consistent. That's one of the things that she needs. She, but she always already has the easy power. Whereas I feel like with Laura, you know, she's relying much more on the leftiness of her serve rather yeah. than like a pa- the power. So she needs. I know that, and I know that that's something that they were working on for quite a bit is trying to juice up her serve. And then with Jeannie, I feel like she places really. I I disagree with you with respect to Jeannie. I feel like the, she's. I I feel like I've seen of the three. I feel like I've seen peak Jeannie more than I've seen peak Madison or peak Laura. Oh no! In terms of frequency, agreed. Right, like, in, just in terms of, yeah. like, the maxed outedness, like, the serve is kind of what the serve is, and it could be more consistent, but it's not going to be any bigger, really, for Jeannie, who's obviously a better defender and athlete and quicker than the other two, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there are just, you know, those times with, with Madison where she swings a racket, and you're just like, if you could just do that every single time, if your footwork could just be right every single time that combined with your serve and the right decision-making of which shots to go for, like you are going to win big things. And just match-to-match consistency too. I mean, I've just seen her play some inexplicably bad matches, some of which she's lost. Sorry, sorry, some of which she's won in terms of, I think, I want to say it was against Patricia Meyer Achleitner at the Australian Open last year where she went like 8-6 in the third. In any event, she doesn't make things as easy on herself as she should with her weapons. And I think... Someone like a Lindsay will be very good at that because Lindsay, you know, steamrolled people for quite a long time. I mean, she was in an era where the top few WTA players really rolled through the early rounds. And so I think she can teach a little of that mindset to Madison, hopefully. And, yeah, I mean, Ma- yeah. Madison needs to get meaner. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's, there's just that's, I mean, you could say the same thing about Laura Robson as well, is that they're two very likable personalities because they're just nice people mm-hmm. very popular um, in the room yeah stuff. very popular in the in in the room you know very popular in the locker room like but in the grand scheme of things they don't have that edge that other players fear them and that's not necessarily always a results a, a results driven thing like they're just you know unfortunately i think that they they do need to develop that edge and i think that a davenport could coax that out of Madison. And I think over time, Madison's gotten better at it. Yeah. I do think. I mean, she had that, you know, absolutely gut-wrenching loss to Pong. Yeah, Pong Shui and Charleston. Yeah, yeah, at Charleston. And I really think that she played a lot. I mean, her mo- mental game was so much better after that. But, um, you know, it's going to be a work in progress. And, and Laura Robson as well. I mean, they've, they've had choky losses and really just days where the game is not there. And so, you know, Jeannie, I think, will probably always be more consistent than those two. Uh, at least for the next like couple years or so, but yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a cool little trio along with like you know right behind them you have like Benchich and you know even Svitolina, Kanya, Kanya, like all that, and then just ahead of them you know you got Sloan and Halep and all that. I mean, it's it's a cool little group that group uh, to see how it's gonna all shake out. Agreed. We got another question related to that group. Stick with that briefly on this carousel ride. Uh, Heidi Berger asks us who coaches Jeannie next and. Oof. Uh, well, let's start with that first question from her. Who coaches Jeannie next, do you think? We don't have – I haven't heard any news out of Camp Jeannie, um, which is, like we said before, has no management. So there's not a lot of – unless you hear it directly from someone last named 
or previously Bouchard, last name Bouchard, yeah. you're not going to get anything. Um, so what do you think on that? Who would you pick for Jeannie if you're picking someone? I was really convinced that she was going to land Fizette, honestly. Yeah, I don't. I never. I didn't see that just from the personality side. Like what I was yeah, saying. personality side. Fair enough. Fair enough. Or Hogstedt after Hogstedt's done with Halep. Hogstedt, I thought was a better. It's a more of a match. Yeah. yeah. Somebody a little bit more intense. Yeah. Um, but it's really tough, you know, because with Saviano, he wasn't at least from my perspective. Um, he wasn't like obviously a name brand coach. I think that there are a lot of tennis fans who weren't really as familiar with Nick, with Nick Saviano before this year. Yeah, not in this era he wasn't for sure. Yeah, you know. Um, so, but what he did have is, um, at least for a while, was Jeannie's trust that you know having coached her since you know she was twelve and and having that kind of relationship. Um, I think that he could probably get a lot out of her and and have her buy into his system. A little bit more and so I think that the only way f- and if that didn't work if somehow that relationship deteriorated even you know amongst all that success mm-hmm. I think that she can only really go with a marquee name coach now because a non-marquee coach may not be able to get the respect that he or she would need yeah. to properly coach her um, but that being said, she might want to go with the non-marquee coach because maybe she wants a little bit more control. Yeah, maybe. And and to be the boss. Doesn't want you the know, power. Not have yeah. exactly not have somebody tell her what to do. So I don't know. It's really tough. How about you? I I completely agree with that. I don't know who it could be, but I do think that it should be. If it's going to be a brand name coach, it should be somebody who is either a willing to go toe to toe with her in a battle of wills or is completely okay checking his ego at the door, or, or her ego at the door, um, and, you know, letting Jeannie call the shots, because that seems to be Jeannie's uh, natural instinct, for better or worse. I mean, she clearly is somebody who believes she belongs to an incredible extent, and that got her very far very quickly. Um, so, let's see, I think, yeah, it's an interesting one, but I think for her, it's a slightly more specific puzzle piece than it is for a lot of players they need to fit into. You know what would be an amazing... Like, not necessarily good or bad, but just drama amazing move. What's that? Michael Joyce. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> that would be good. I actually heard someone mention that before. Mm-hmm. To lure him away from his cushy position with uh, Jesse Pagula. And it would be so next Sharapova. It would be so next Sharapova. Yeah. And given her marketing potential, and depending on which agency she signs for, she has the cash to do it. Yep. Um, to like be effectively, I presume, buy him out of any sort of deal he has with Pagula. So that would be a muse. <laughs> but I also have to think, never going to happen. Last question on the coaching front, also from Heidi Berger, the second part of her question. We didn't mention this before, but I guess it happened since our last show. Are you surprised to see Andy Murray side with Moresmo over Danny Valverde? And I guess that's interpretation of things. I don't think it was, that was ever necessarily official move but that was the one i guess men's coaching carousel move of note even though it was less of a carousel and more of like a some adjusting their position on the same horse on the carousel i guess not quite sure weird yeah the carousel analogy did not work at all please, please <laughs> abandon that gotta learn how to you gotta learn when to let it go i'm letting it go right now okay it's gone it's gone i am not surprised i think that anybody kind of around the murray camp or British um, yeah. knew that there was there was a lot of discord um, with the way that that Andy had gone about uh, hiring 
Amelie, that Danny was was not exactly pleased about being kept out of the loop on it, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm not entirely surprised. I think that one thing that Andy has always shown ever since he was like a teenager before he was pro is that he has a vision for his career. He sees where he wants things to go and how he wants them to go. And he's not afraid to make like the big gutsy moves to change things. Mm-hmm. So we've seen that. So I'm, I'm, it doesn't surprise me that, like, to me, he's, like, not, like, a Novak, for example. I could never see a Novak, like, bailing on Marion Vida in favor of Boris Becker. Right. He's just incredibly loyal. He needs his team. And not to say that Andy isn't. But Andy's a little bit more cutthroat in that way, I think. So that's one side of things. There is a part of me that kind of just speculating. Mm-hmm. And... Maybe projecting. I don't know. Okay. Let's 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 all get into the therapy office for a second. I kind of feel like there might be a part of Andy Murray who's almost setting up a situation where everyone is going to doubt his ability to kind of get back to the top, and that that will somehow drive him to kind of that will he's almost like creating and building a big chip to put on his own shoulder in order to kind of like spur him on in 2015 and feeling like okay I do feel like I have something to prove people are doubting my decision to hire Amelie even my best friend Danny um and my team that were totally loyal for with me da 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 da, da. so I'm going to like reform my team go all in on this decision and I'm going to put the pressure on me to deliver and prove everybody wrong. Interesting. It's a very cinematic view of things. But yeah. I'm a, I'm a cinematic gal. It works. It's, it's, it's nice. I like that. It's very it's very clean. It's romantic. I'm not sure if he's doing it, it might be somewhat subconscious of him doing it. But yeah, I, I, I don't refute that totally. I think it's interesting that sticking with Maresmo over much longer time people is an interesting uh, sticking to his guns and his... Uh, principles on that because i think after after the beatdown from federer in london i think a lot of people were wondering if that you know put Marezmo on the hot seat at all and it wound up somehow turning the tables on people who people probably thought were more safe so there you go yeah but i don't really think that the beatdown had anything to do with him choosing him letting danny go or you think it had to happen anyway yeah, yeah. i think that it was inevitable that the discussions had already been that the feeling was already like kind of like so one of you one of these two is leaving at the end of the season and it just depends on who Andy backs mm-hmm. sort of thing and and i mean i think that there is also because i do believe that they did split amicably like i, I don't think there's any like necessarily like ill will or pissed offedness between Andy and Danny mm-hmm. and so and i think that and i would hope that a lot of that has or i would think that a lot of that has to do with ideally that they didn't let their relationship deteriorate you know like that that animosity or whatever negativity like affect their friendship because that would that would really suck but i think that so long as it was like a clean break and everybody understood what the situation is then i think everybody will be better off and danny if he wants to is really well positioned to get a pretty good job now oh for sure with with the work he has attached to murray through the whole rise he could totally step in and be a lead coach for somebody somebody pretty good pretty soon yep so could be interesting to see where he goes. And, and good for him because honestly, like, you know, so long as he was with Andy, he was always going to kind of get second billing. Yeah. Nobody was ever going to really give, no matter what Andy said or no matter what anybody said, give him a lot of credit for Andy's success. 
because he it, well, he was always going to be seen as like the hitting partner. Yeah, and the and the friend. And the friend, the bestie, you know. He was stuck in the friend zone of greatness. <laughs> exactly, you got friend zoned. So it's good for him to like you know. Now you got to go all in too, you know, Danny, like go coach somebody and see if you can get the same success. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's interesting for both guys. On purely hair basis, I think you should coach Ronich. Just a thought. Interesting. Just a thought. Interesting. Danny Valverde has seriously unmovable hair too. It's a, it's a good head of hair, Danny Val. Do you think that Ronich has such questionable hair decisions because he's coached by Ivan Lubacic? <laughs> um, Is it kind of one of those like Tony Nadal like – how can you coach men's tennis if you've never played men's tennis sort of things? Like, how can you advise on the proper way to style a full, robust head of hair maybe, if you're Ivan Lubacic? Well, maybe I can see a few things. Either either Milos – I'm not convinced that the hair is related to Lubacic. But if it is, <laughs> either Milos is doing it to taunt Lubacic. Like, look at what I can do with my hair. If you had hair, you'd make better decisions, but this is on my head. Look what I'm doing to it in sort of a, a spiteful way. Yeah, kind of like how rich people dress like hobos. Right. Or, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or <laughs> maybe Yvonne has input and is living vicariously through Milos's head and thinks that, like, this is what he always wanted to do. And he's having his wildest hair fantasy. Because whatever that is, it's very, it's, it's out there. It's confusing. Uh, yeah, it is. So I think it's pretty confusing. fascinating. Yeah. You, is it a can? Is that a Canadian hairstyle? No, I don't think so. Although I did see a photo of him that he posted recently that he was looking like it was like a artsy, modely shot of Milos, and he was wearing like a denim shirt. It's it his new funny. avatar. Yeah. he's like in a, tu- a Canadian tuxedo. Yeah, it was pretty it's Canadian. Oh, Canadian tuxedos! Oh, Canada! It's just the best. Uh, one question that you got, Courtney, this is not really for me at all, is from Stevo, who asks us, why is Courtney lying on those fake A grades to Maria, Hallett, Petra, and Bouchard? I'm guessing this is about your Sports Illustrated report card, Courtney, for this season. I assume as much. Yeah. I should, unless I lied somewhere else. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yes, we, uh, we're doing our SI like year-end countdown. Uh, not countdown, but like awards and whatever. And so the first... Um, post that we did earlier this week was the WTA report cards. Okay. Uh, the ATP report cards will be coming out next week. And first off, let me just say that like the whole report card system is always a really tough one because how, how do you grade? And everybody has an opinion on yeah. it because should it be on a curve? Should it not be like, right? Like, you know, and so, and I totally understand the criticism because there were definitely in the past weeks where, for example, Rafa would lose in the, the semifinals of a tournament and I would give him like a B minus or a C minus or something, right? And somebody like a Jeremy Chardy would lose in the quarterfinals, but push Federer to three sets. And I'd be like, B plus for you, Jeremy Chardy. And it would be like, how can you, right? Right, but that's that- all of that's all of sports. So everyone's graded on a curve. If you want exactly. uncurved gradings, just look at the rankings. Precisely right. Yeah. So for me, um, yes, I gave. I did feel like I was pretty. I don't know if I'm just in a good mood. I don't know what it was. <laughs> I think that I was generally pretty like lenient soft, with yeah. This, yeah, I was soft on grades this year. I think that a lot of it is because it was kind of a complicated year to grade, and because to me, if you win a major, like you can't get below an A. Below like, an A minus, you mean, or just... below? I'm sorry, below an A minus. Okay. Like, I just think that if you win a major, like, that was a successful year. And it doesn't really matter what else happens. 
genuinely unless you are like an asshole off court or like you get you get issued like a fifteen thousand dollar fine or something but for the most part that's generally my rubric so long as everything's all right you know you finish in the top 10 you want a major good for you yeah unless it's something extreme i would say like serena in 05 where she wins a major and then completely falls apart right it's a disaster the rest of the year Sure. Maybe something like that, you know, but, but yeah, so I'm pretty, uh, you know, so like with the Sharapova coming back from shoulder injury that ended her season early last year, almost fell out of the top 10. She's losing to Camilla Giorgi and all that sort of stuff to win the French Open to finish at number two. That's a pretty darn good year. I think that Maria Sharapova would take that year. Oh, completely. No questions asked, even with all the other weird losses. So there's that. Um, a Bouchard, how could, I felt, I was like, how could you give her anything outside of an, outside of the A range? Yeah, A or A plus for Bouchard, I'd have to. Yeah, think. like, I mean. She started number how, 30, or 31 yeah, or something. how could you expect more? Yeah. Like, you know, like, if, if I were to say, you know, so, so I gave her, and I said the same thing about Halep. You know, yes, she won fewer titles, obviously, than she did last year, but she, was she delivered. She tougher tournaments, too. Tougher tournaments, pushed players, you know, you know, was, uh, I mean, really very easily could have won the French Open this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I think that she did just like more than I expected her to do. So, yeah. So in terms of the grades, I think that uh, I'm not going to go through every single grade that I issued. But if you look through, like a Kvitova. Kvitova is the one A that I, that I would have thought about maybe not, not giving a straight Sure. A to. I could understand like giving her a B plus. Yeah. I could. But for me personally, like she won Wimbledon. She finished with what, like Four, three titles, four titles? In that range, yeah. Three three titles or whatever. Um, but yeah, she won Wimbledon, and the way that she did it was pretty spectacular. Um, and then just also, I mean, obviously, off-court things are taken into consideration as well. Like, all of the Linos stuff, and all of the... Just generally, Petra being Petra, and Fed um, winning Fed Cup again. Mm-hmm. Um, all these sorts of things. I'm like, that's at a minimum A-, minus, if not more. Like, Petra won a slam. She's now a two-time slam winner. Anyways... That's my kind of mindset as I go through doing the grades. So I definitely understand when people get mad about them and that, you know. It's a thankless job. I mean, no one's going to be like, wow, Courtney, that was a really accurate report card. It's tough because I think that the only maybe two players that I ended ended up issuing grades for that were like pretty harsh grades were Stevens and Azarenka. Yeah. But those I thought were like genuinely earned. They both plummeted, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, you plummeted. I mean, what, what... can we say you know and and with Azarenka I added the caveat like she was injured and that obviously impacts a lot but you know the sport I do believe that when Victoria Azarenka is not like a top five player and playing her best tennis you know healthy that the that the WTA is weaker um as an entity uh she just adds like this different element to the top 10 so so yeah but so that's my explanation and I look forward to all of the angry emails when I give, I don't know, like, Marin Cilic an A-. minus. Do you, Are you going to give Rafa something in the A range? Because I'm not sure I would this year. It's tough, you know, because of the injuries and all that. But if and... you're giving Azarenka a low grade off of injuries, too. I mean, Nadal, I just think, was number one, finished number three. Yeah, and just only won one major and one asterisk yeah, masters. I don't know. No, I, would, I would think B-plus for Rafa. That's... And for him winning the French, talking about grading on a curve, like that's not exactly. That's thing. the thing is, if we're talking about grading on a curve, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that that's where I would say Rafa probably might get a get high B range, but I wouldn't. It wouldn't be anything lower than a B plus because I I still think that like 
you know, to win it, especially as good as Novak has been getting and as close as he's been getting to catching him uh, at the French for him to still hold uh, Novak off is tough. But it's the same thing as like why everybody's like, how can I got a bunch of emails today, like or emails and tweets and stuff like how can Sports Illustrated nominate Roger Federer for Sportsman of the Year right? and not Novak or Rafa? who won majors and Rafa and Fed didn't even win a major and things like that. And it's like, well, it's a totality of the circumstances thing. It's narrative, it's story, it's, you know, rebounding. It's all story pretty much. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a sports writing magazine, right? Like it's for people who like to write stories about, uh, you know, within sports. So, but uh, I'll just tell you guys for the record, no tennis player is going to win sportsman this year. No. It's just not going to happen. This is not, not the happen. year for tennis. Sorry. And I don't have any say in it. I, I'm just speaking from an. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I. I from I the outside, I can tell it. this is not yeah. a strong year for tennis candidates. No, no not at all. If like I always say, if Serena couldn't win it last year, and if Roger couldn't, and, and Novak didn't win it in 2011, yep. And if Roger didn't win in any of the years that he was the most dominant human being on the planet, Serena didn't win it in it's 02. Never gonna. Happen. Yeah, yeah, it's never gonna happen. Nope. And that's not because, like, you know, they don't necessarily, quote-unquote, deserve it, but it's an American sports magazine. It says more about the stature of tennis within America than anything else. And the stature, it, I would say. Not a, yeah. It's would, not a referendum on them and their accomplishments. It's about the fact that, you know, if you think about it in, like, kind of tennis terms, like, the the big American sports, the big four, the big five, are, like, the slams and the masters and tennis is like the 250s. And so you can go and be David Goffin and do what <laughs> he did. But that doesn't mean that you're going to get any chance of winning like ATP player of the year. Yeah. Because what you did was on a smaller scale. Right. Um, you know, pers- even though what you did was amazing. So I'm not even sure where the Goffin it might even be the Carreño Busta when he was on his run. Yeah, maybe. Remember him? Remember he was kind of a thing? Not anymore. Basically. Not anymore. Basically. Oh, well. A couple weeks ago, we got a couple comments on our London show we wanted to get to in the mailbag type section. Reviews of the show that were sad about the fact that we did not talk about the doubles. Ian Warren said, no mention of doubles, ellipses, which I think was a sad, disappointed ellipses. And Matthew Neger says, I am well sad that you completely ignored the really great doubles this week. Um, And he gives some details about what made it so great. So, Courtney, why – and we did. We admit this. We completely ignored the doubles in London. Why do we ignore doubles as a people? We own, I, think we, I think we own this that we do. And it's, yeah, it's not – you know, we're not boasting about it, but we, no. we admit it for sure. Yeah, I mean I think that there's no way that – I mean anybody who covers the sport professionally can say that they give like enough credit and enough attention to doubles. I think that that's something that we're all guilty of not – doing well it depends on how much you think it deserves so well, th- well fair enough fair enough but but to say that like yeah i mean should in the grand scheme of things could doubles be covered more yes yes absolutely no question about it but from a pure and this is just always kind of my response which is unfortunately like a very i don't know cold and market driven kind of response is that no i've 
been in in kind of uh, situations where the doubles is the big story. It's very obvious. You know, we obviously as Americans we get this a lot with the Bryans. Yeah. They're constantly breaking records and hitting milestones, and you know, it's always something that like obviously we want to cover because they're just such a great sports story, et cetera, et cetera. And so we do. And then, you know, I get an insight into the traffic that's being driven or the attention that people are giving to it and it's pretty minimal and which is which is different you know because like i know that the Bryans can pack out a stadium like when they play like at tournaments like people are really excited to see the Bryans. but standalone not connect completely disconnected from singles it's a really hard thing to get people kind of uh like casual fans non-fans uh you know just general sports fans kind of interested in um so that's really tough now if i think that if maybe if there was more doubles shown on tv if maybe there was more exposure to it and it became like a bit more of a buzz then maybe that would change but it just my sense is like obviously there are people who are extremely passionate about doubles you know i've heard the stat told to me a gazillion times that more americans play doubles than singles yeah tennis Yeah. yeah recreationally totally understand that when I'm at tournaments and I watch doubles and I'm in the stands, I hear people talking about, oh, yeah, it's like strategy and stuff like that. And it's really cool. Um, and fans get really into it. But at the end of the day, it's it's just not really thing that, that drives interest in the sport as a whole. And doubles has to be pretty exceptional. Something has to be pretty exceptional in doubles to sort of break the plane of relevance in the sport in terms of coverage and what sort of things we cover. I mean, let's be clear. Like there are Grand Slam finals for doubles that are stadiums more than half empty yeah it happens it's just just like on that level doubles is not the you know doesn't have the magnitude at all doesn't have the you know the weight to it because the best players aren't always playing and the crowds aren't there and so when something like the brian's going close to the calendar slam last year that i think at least I know from my writing, I got pretty on top of, yeah. I wrote a bunch of stories about that, but it has to be something pretty exceptional, like getting three legs of the calendar slam to take note or when they win a hundred titles or something like that. I mean, the Bryans, right. we talked about this in London, I think the Bryans are a pair of American identical twins who win everything. <laughs> like they are like lab custom made to be like the ultimate double story. And they're great media. They're like the nicest people of media. They're very accommodating, very thoughtful, all this stuff. They're basically like a like if you could like the, a pair of Captain Americas, yeah, who play doubles tennis. Totally. Like you couldn't ask for b- better ambassadors for the sport. You really couldn't. And they are keeping doubles as afloat as it is. That's yep. all due to them. But if the, even they can't really break through, it's not reflecting very well on doubles, unfortunately. And I mean, yeah. If the in stars general. played. I mean, it's it's the difference between. You know, and obviously this doesn't completely work as an analogy because one is still unproven, but it's World Team Tennis versus the IPTL. Okay. Yeah, no, if, true. Very true. Right? Like, if the if the stars were to play doubles, doubles would be legit. Yeah. And you ask any, any like, doubles person this question, like Martina Navratilova, that's her big thing. She's like – and Billie Jean King as well. They all say, like, you know, the stars need to play it because people pay to see the stars. Yeah, back in the and, 70s and stuff, they used to have exactly. doubles-only tournaments too. Yep, and um, it was still the same field as the singles. Right, and it was Billie Jean King would go out there and play with Rosie Casals or something, mm-hmm. and they would all play doubles that weekend. It's just what was done. Yep. In in modern pro game, really the only tournament where you get that is Indian Wells, and that's very cool for that one week, but it doesn't translate at all. And then even then, I think sometimes at Indian Wells, 
or at least at Miami for sure, the doubles final isn't even streamed or televised. Right. After Do all you... of that greatness. So. Yeah, let me ask you this question about doubles. Do you think that, obviously, no tour has unlimited resources? So obviously, yeah. if you devote resources to one thing, you lose those resources for another thing. But do you think that, let's say with ATP specifically, since they have more money and are, are a bit more stable, do you think that the ATP should invest in, you know, stream like uh, uh, producing more doubles matches for streaming? Or is that not a, you know is that not worth the money what I do you think, think oh they know what they're getting out of it so i mean they have more of the math on that that they need to, to be True. the actuaries about it i think producing finals at masters is kind of a minimum and that they should be doing but in general no i think if they're for money the bigger priority should be doing more and more singles matches it's yeah. you know because that's, that's where people care getting if they had you know every court televised at a, at, a, at a master's tournament that'd be so great and they could spread out matches more it make scheduling so much easier for them that's something wta has talked about in the uh, state of the wta address in singapore mm-hmm. i think stacy allister guaranteed or promised that every singles match main draw would be televised or streamed by 2017 i think that's massive put on it that's huge i, and, I can't even yeah. imagine that yeah, but yeah. That's, that's incredible and like i said for tv that makes things so much easier because so much of you know international TV decisions go into scheduling on TV courts, and so that's why, let's say, a Radvanska might get on TV more than the sorry might get on TV court more than the demand for her is in the stadium because the Polish Eurosport demand is really big, and if it's not that way, I don't know. It would just make for less headaches for everybody if everything was streamed. Doubles, if there's appetite for it, cool if the math works out, but. Bottom line is, as it is now, doubles is sort of a parasite on the singles tour. It wouldn't be able to survive on its own at all. Yeah. And I think single, I think doubles players recognize that completely. And they realize that they are not the main show in town. And even though they would like more respect, I think a lot of them uh, are fairly cynical and realistic about it. So that's how the deck shakes out. And they make pretty good money, the doubles players, for something that so few people, so few people watch relatively it's kind of the same thing as like you can say about you know like the lower ranked atp guys obviously the discussion always comes up every single year about prize money and Mm -hmm. obviously the atp wants to increase prize money etc etc and you're constantly kind of telling not telling but at least a thought that crosses my mind quite a bit is that okay but you guys are i'm all for people making as much money as they possibly can like all for it super so long as everything remains viable right but like you guys realize, right, that, like, you're making money because Roger Federer exists. Yeah. Because to some a certain extent, Rafael Nadal exists, to the extent that the big four exist. The fact that th- these players are driving media coverage, sponsorship, attention, TV contracts, et cetera, et cetera. That's why random player ranked number 74, you can make a living as a top 100 player because that money then trickles down. And that also obviously then, again, applies to the doubles as well, is that like t- tennis is, is, is viable on either. That's why both the ATP and the WTA are in the business of cultivating stars. They have to um, to drive interest in the sport because people, fans can't get to know 100 players, Yeah, but they can get to know fe- and feverishly follow five. Yep, that's manageable. Right? That's manageable. That's somewhat doable. And even just in just 
taking that analogy even to a single match. I think that's why people gravitate so much more to singles. Is that when you're watching a singles match, you get sucked into these two people and their struggle. And doubles with two more people, I think it's just that little bit messier that doesn't make the same connection. I think it's and that's a big part of it. I don't think that people watch doubles, especially on TV. I don't think doubles personalities translate very well at all a lot of times. Yeah. And you see the doubles guys like the Bryans especially and some occasional other people too like a Leander Pays or a, uh, who else would do this? Someone like a Lindstedt even um, you know, compensating with a lot more personality and a lot more showboating than yeah. the singles players ever show. Um, and that's part of it. And that shows them having to work harder in that way to entertain shows a bit of the inherent thing. That's the thing, right? Is that if you have to keep entertaining on your mind then does that affect your you know it goes back to the iptl discussion if, if the goal is to entertain because the entertainment is what drives the money then does that affect whether or not i think it just reflects on the reality of the product here right. right well and yeah. the pure the, the pure competitive nature of whatever product that you're putting out yeah so there we go we can't promise more tools talk in the future um we'll try to at least mention it more briefly but at the same time probably not there's Sorry. also a lot of singles going on. There's a lot, like, you guys. Yeah. It would be adding, I don't know. It, I think about it a lot, like about two tours, singles on the men's and the women's, and then adding on to that, having to keep track of doubles. It's that's too much. It's a bit. It's a bit much. Bit much. With with minimal payoff. Yeah. Unfortunately, which I'm not happy to say. I'm not proud to say it. It's no, it'd be cool, and it would be very cool if there were like honest. Twitter accounts or. <laughs> blogs that yes. are really double centric i'm surprised it doesn't exist actually i can't think of one off the top of my head it's like a really devoted doubles thing that's true but there's your niche you guys hey if you want to if you want to be be the change you want in the world questioners <laughs> there you go be the doubles that you want to see in the world yeah no it's true i mean that is a niche is like if you had like a you know a colette lewis yeah of doubles Right, yeah. like you know, like a a devoted yeah. Colette who covers, covers the juniors in college. Exactly, shows. yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's totally a place for that. Totally a place if for it. Wants to keep us up on the latest, you know, partner changing dramas and everything. I would totally yep. put that in my RSS reader. Totally. Or or posting hot shots. Yeah. Right, like yeah. I don't get to watch it. So if you saw it and you can catch the clip of it and you post it or gifs, gifs or like whatever it is. Like if you create, you can create the more you know energy and coverage you devote to something you can create single-handedly a market for it yeah by the so, way i totally say gifts even though the guy said it was just i say gif i say it's gif all the time so it's like it's gift gi- like the gif. word gift like gift right but the, which the, gifts the, are yeah the creator said it was gif and i refute that just phonetically gifts not how it works are closer to gifts yeah. than they are to peanut butter right so right peanut butter is it. you know yeah not a gif not animated gif. really not Nope. It's very still. It's very. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. That's not a gift. No, it wasn't pleasant at all. Yeah. We got a question about a topic that came up very prominently in one of our shows over the summer uh, from Panders, who asks us any updates on what's going on with Neil Harmon? Haven't heard much since the original story broke. Um, and I will just say briefly on this that. I do get asked about this like a lot, like constantly. Shocker! <laughs> really? No, no, it's really, sh- really. Why you? Really? I don't know. It's it's interesting. It's a weird sort of thing, and it does get talked about even by people who aren't me still in the press room quite a bit. Um, Neil, 
update as it was reported by some outlets but not really confirmed neil has apparently been uh terminated by the times of london uh although they have the times of london still has refused to officially confirm that for whatever reasons of procedure that are going on there and he did he was uh i heard neil at the tennis briefly in london not in a reporter capacity just i, I don't know what he was there for, but I, people saw him there and that's about it I guess, of things that I know well enough to say here. Um, yeah, so that's it. And I, yeah, I just wanted to, because people do ask on Twitter and on this a lot about what's going on with that. So there's your update. Hopefully the whole story will die down soon. I hope. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> do you like my awkward silence? It was pretty great. Thank you for that. No problem. From that, we'll move on. Uh, Panders also asked for Take a Number, so that's something we'll do much more enthusiastically. Uh, If you haven't heard our Take a Number segment before, it's where we take a number between 1 and 100 uh, in a random number generator and talk about the player on the men's and women's tour singles rankings, who corresponds to that number. We could do doubles, I guess, but that could be rough. (laughs) You want to try it? No. No, it's not. Remember that? T- I forget who was it that we drew and neither of us knew anything about that person. It was like Alejandro Gonzalez or something. It might have been, yeah. yeah. We just yeah. didn't know who that was. And that was in singles top 100. So, all right, you ready? Yep. All right, so going to hit the generator, find a number between 1 and 100, and our number is, do-do-do, ooh, 15. Intriguing. Low number for us. Okay. Oh my gosh, this podcast <laughs> is going to be twice in length, you guys. <laughs> Twice in length. All right, I'll start because mine is uh, not that not that interesting. I don't think uh, number fifteen on the men's side, much higher than he was this time last year, is the ATP Most Improved winner, Roberto Batista Agut. At fifteen. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And wow. Courtney, which is about as obscure as you can get, a top twenty. So that's that's very true. Um, and Courtney, who is it? Who is his opposite number on the ladies' side? Uh, the princess, Roberto yep. Batista Agut, uh-huh. will be dancing with the Glitter Queen. <laughs> Number 15 on the WTA side is the one, the only, the bringer of light, the bringer of joy, Yelena Yankovic. Oh my goodness. Oh gosh. <laughs> okay. Demo. <sighs> okay. Uh, you do a really good Yelena impression. That's the one thing we can translate from the 40 Deuce podcast days, I think, is probably your Elena place. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty good. I whip it out every once in a while. I mean, it's not good in that it's accurate, <laughs> but it's good in that it's striking. It captures the essence. I think so. Exactly. All right, let's start with Roberto, because I think there's a lot less on him. I, I know there's a lot less on him. <laughs> Batista Agut smugly was probably the, my best prediction ever, was that Batista Agut, on the podcast anyway, Best prediction ever on the podcast was that Batista Gut would beat Del Potro at the Australian Open this year. Did, and he did. So I was very smug about that. And I was pretty smug. I rode that smugness through most of the first half of 2014 and probably beyond um, when he kept doing well. And it moved very quickly. Batista Gut, as you mentioned with the princess thing, uh, is a notable adversary and mortal enemy of Ernest Gulbis <laughs> in, the, so in the most random rivalry in tennis. They played in New Orleans. I mean, so it was really started last year, I think, in St. Petersburg, where 
Batista Coot was getting killed and uh, then started complaining that Golbus was squeaking his shoes a la Ivanovich 08 in, while he was getting ready to return serve and Ernest needled him a little bit during the match and then afterwards in an encore interview with Anastasia Mesquina as the interview randomly as a reporter uh, said that he was a spoiled princess and a baby and should shut up so that's fun beef. I've tried asking Batista Good about that, and he did not really engage, whereas Golbus did. So that was fun. So what did Golbus say more? Did he? I mean, did he have like additional comments? You about know what? Roberto? I'm actually just going to splice the audio of what Golbus said in here. Let's just do that. About the opponents, I've seen a couple matches of you and Batista Good. He seems to get under your skin a fair amount more than like in St. Petersburg. I know and. Uh, uh, yeah, some pieces. If you if you remember, I don't remember the score, but it was an easy match, yeah. you know. And uh, how you can get under my skin if I'm set up, uh, break up, scoring for the match, you know, and what you're trying to prove, you know. I beat him uh, really easy there, and there was no chance, you know. And that's why I called him spoiled princess because uh, if you're losing a match, you you know, lose it like a man, you know, and that's it, you know. Probably he's a great guy outside of the court. Unfortunately, I will never find out. <laughs> <laughs> and today, today, today I couldn't hear everything that was going on, but it seemed like, again, you, he was complaining about you complaining or something. It, what it, was the, it's fine. Yeah. It's part of the game. It's a yeah. fight. It's also a mental fight. If you're not ready for it, choose another profession. Yeah. And, and uh, honestly, he's, he's improved a lot. He's a, he's a great tennis player. Yeah. But if you cannot take it, uh, what I'm doing mentally when I'm... Te- talking to Empire or something about if I complain about something, that's, that's completely his problem. So, there's Ernie, who we probably have to inject for a little bit of interestingness in Pisa Gut, who's very good player, plays a very flat game, is pretty effective, um, but has not a whole lot on the on-court stage presence side or the press room interview side. So, yeah, I hear that. Courtney, wake up. Let's talk about Yelena. Courtney, Courtney. Oh, my God. Yelena Yankovic. Okay. Ugh. So, where would, does one begin with Yelena? What is her... If she was a superhero, what would her origin story be? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That's an amazing question. Amazing question. Ugh. First of all... First of all, would Yelena Yankovic be a standalone superhero? Or would she be, like, an X-Men... Or like an Avenger, not that the Avengers aren't standalone, they are standalone, but you know, operating yeah. within a team. Or is she just like her own little deal? Little like deal. Alexa, or like Daredevil, who doesn't really like deal, like just kind of ha- operates in their own little universe. Here's the thing, that's a really good question. I don't even like superhero comic book stuff at all, but that's a good question. Because Yelena is so out there that she almost wouldn't work on her own. Exactly. She would almost, and, and being in a group would allow her to be like the crazy glitter one in the group. But also, I can't see her getting along with a group in terms of having her, if she was a superpower enabled person who was an even bigger personality than she already is. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. Yeah, that, that could go well. So you're basically saying she's Wolverine. I get, if you say so. Yes. Like a superhero, incredibly gifted, has a superpower. That could pretty much slay anyone. Yep. Insofar as, as, just like Wolverine, she is unkillable. Okay. Which is Wolverine's superpower. Oh, I didn't know that. Good for him. Um, he has advanced healing capabilities. So that's why everybody thinks that, like, with Wolverine, that his superhero powers are the claws. But the reason is because, like, the government 
made put the claws in him because he could heal. Why did the claws stop him from? So he has the claws and he can't touch people and heal them. No, no, no. He heals his body heals at like a ridiculously, obviously mutated rate. Okay. Right, so he can get shot and like his body will like spit out the bullet. Oh, that's nice. And like heal the bullet wound. Okay. So he's kind of he's effectively unkillable. Okay. But that's why, like, even though the the claws that come out of his fingers, like, you know, are the flashy thing, so people think that's what makes him a mutant. Right. His actual mutant superpower is healing, which allows the claws. So, like with Elena Yankovich, she is basically unkillable. Nuclear warfare could happen, and Yelena Yankovic would still be in Tashkent, <laughs> losing a quarterfinal. So you're calling her That's a cockroach, re- basically. Effectively, yes. But she's more... but in the most loving way. Like I love Yelena. Anybody who knows me knows I love Yelena. But yeah, Yelena Yankovic, ranked number fifteen, should be ranked higher. Really thought that she was going to have a really good year this year. She was all teed up to have a good one. Was so excited at the prospect, theoretically, of like, oh, maybe she can qualify for the year in championships. Maybe she can win the French. Maybe she can win the French, as someone on this podcast had predicted her Might to have do. Said, maybe. Might have said, um, whose name does not rhyme with Schmortney Schmin. <laughs> yeah, and she just kind of had suffered some some pretty surprising losses, some pretty bad ones. But yeah. Ben Yelena Yankovic is going to play for another twenty years. Oh my god! So. Yes. Talk about if somebody we who's to... going to be getting happiness PowerPoints for the rest of the time. Oh, forever. Yeah. So, but if we were to apply the general rule of, which I kind of generally abide by, which is I don't really like talking about players' legacies yeah. while they're still playing. Okay. But if we apply that to Yelena, we're just not going to talk about her legacy for another 20 years. So <laughs> what will, like... Hall what of Fame class Yel- of 2047, Yelena Yankovic. Yeah. yeah. Like, what is, what is the Yelena Yankovic experience? How is the WTA different with her around? Like, what is Yelena Yankovic? Yelena Yankovic has this incredible, and I think we had Andre Pekovic on the podcast and she talked about this well. Like, Yelena is just so unapologetically herself, and the world revolves around her in a way that I find really refreshing. Even though on paper I should not like her, she has this sort of way of being on her own planet that I find just endearing. I mean, when she was starting out on the tour, um, and she, people forget that she actually had a pretty big head start on Ivanovich in terms of emerging on the tour, even though people lump their ascendancy in 08 together. I mean, Elena made the semis of the U.S. Open in 06 and actually was up a set in 4-0, I believe, on Justin Ennin before losing that. And she would have been in the final against Sharapova, which might have been winnable at that point. And yeah, she, ever since then, has just had this really unapologetic, unflinching, being an unmovable force, unstoppable force of stage presence and showmanship and occasional ridiculousness and complaining and divadom and all these things that come in a fairly unexpected package and obviously in the early days her mom was there too on the sidelines and her mom may have been one of the biggest cult figures in the history <laughs> of tennis sidelines i think true i mean really they were they were just sort of larger than life <laughs> and they believed characters. themselves to be larger than life yeah. i mean that's that was part of it i mean i think that you totally did nail it on nailed on hit the nail on the head uh-huh. there is an earnestness to 
her outlandishness. Yep. You know, like, it's just, Yelena's gonna Yelena. And that's totally, I think, what in, what does endear her to kind of tennis fandom. I mean, she's she's this cult figure that even whether she's playing well or not well, she's always seemingly kind of relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, just as somebody that people like to tune in and watch and, you know, and that's just her personality. I mean, her game when she plays well is just fun. Yeah. It's just counter punching at its best. With punch. Really. Though. I mean, I think a With lot of punch. people lumped her in when Wozniacki was rising up. And yeah. number one, I think a lot of people lumped them together as retrievers and absolutely not. I mean, Yelena is like the purest counter puncher and that she wouldn't really make the first move that often in rallies, but she could pounce. Yep. on the slightest bit of advantage she had in rally and really redirect the point in her downline backhands and stuff. And she was a great, great fighter and somebody, one of the big things in her legacy, I think, is that she did not back down against anybody. True. She couldn't beat Justine, but she didn't back down against her. And she had, had a really good record against both Williams sisters at a time when very few did. I mean, she had several wins over each of them, including beating both of them at slams, which is a pretty would, rare feat. Would you agree that the only player that has ever been in Yelena Yankovic's head is Maria Sharapova. Um, yes, but I'll let you detail more of that because you know that story better than I do. I mean, nothing really other than just that they both, you know, obviously they, they came up kind of together through Boletaries, mm-hmm. both players from, you know, obviously Sharapova from Russia, Yelena Yankovic from Serbia at Boletaries, which is a highly competitive academy. Yeah. You know, there's those kids as they, as they go through there, you basically play each other all the time every day and you're playing to win in order to get attention in order to get you know sponsors, kudos yeah. sponsors whatever it is and there's always been that sense when you watch a Sharapova Yankovic match and Sharapova like absolutely dominates Yelena Yankovic yeah. it's like not even funny you but you always get the sense that when those two play each other all the millions that Sharapova has earned and her face is on the billboard is gone Yelena Yankovic is like "Quote unquote mansion in San Diego, and just a glitter tastic, you know, diva queen aspect is gone too. Whenever they play, whether it's on a center court or a secondary court, you feel like you're watching like this back back uh, back lot battle yep. at at Balteri's, and you're watching two kids just go at each other who don't like each other." And who want to put each other in their in, in, in their respective places. Sharapova has always been much more successful than Yelena <laughs> yeah. at that. And I think that that just really gets into... Uh, I, I, you see it with Yelena. There's just this... Uh, I mean, remember when she was like... Bagel- Did she not bagel Sharapova and lose the match last in, year in Miami? No, she bageled Sharapova and lost the match in French Open. There you go. Yeah. Yes. And then sure, yeah, that's right. But yeah, there's just kind of this sense that like Sharapova owns her. But yeah, I mean, I love Yelena. She's always, I mean, Ben, please regale with our last remaining time, uh-huh. our listeners, with a summation of what it's like to deal with Yelena as a member of the press corps. I mean, Yelena, <laughs> we've told this story before, I'm sure, on the on the show. Yelena's most, she, she, I've been at a couple tournaments where Yelena has hijacked the tournament completely <laughs> and out of nowhere made a run to the final. Always the final, always losing in the final. One was Cincinnati. in Cincinnati in 20, 2012, let's say, and she lost the share for that. Yeah, 2012. Wait, is that right? At some point in Cincinnati, she lost the final to Sharapova. And on the way there, it was just this like roller coaster ride of like press conferences. And she has this way of like walking into the room and just like plopping down on the chair and just looking so forlorn. But yet, so ready for 
attention and to talk and share everything you've ever wanted to know and then a lot more. And she did the same thing in Charleston in 2013. So it must have been 2011 because it was more than a year between them. In Charleston, which made the final, it was just like open mic night with her. She was just up there for like 20 minutes at a time. And just ridiculous. And I think she's oblivious to it. I don't think she really gets how out there she is. And I hope she never, ever... No, changes. I hope, yeah, exactly. But she would walk into, remember one time she walked into the room out of nowhere with no prompting and turned to us all and said, who wants to fight me? <laughs> We're like, what? And she's like, oh, who wants to fight me? And then she started laughing and sat down. And then as she walked my, out 20 minutes later, she was like, anyone want to fight? And I was like, when did Elena Yankovic suddenly enter a fight club? And what? I can't imagine the rules of that club. Jesus, <laughs> yeah. First rule of Yelena Yankovic Fight Club: Everybody talks about Yelena Yankovic Fight Club. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> to much to your friends, to your neighbors, uh, everyone. Yeah, I mean, she has. She is very much like her press conference persona is very much the like overburdened and exhausted diva, mm-hmm. but only she thinks that. <laughs> You know, like, the rest of us are just in there to get a quick quote. Like, you know, like, so, like, I'll be in there and I'm just like, so, Elena, like, tomorrow you play Maria. You know, what do you need to do differently? Like, that's the only thing I want. And that the whole thing lasts for, like, 25 minutes. And only one question was asked, but she proceeds to, like, monologue. She'll talk about the weather. She'll talk about, like, is it cold in here? What's but, that, what's but that it's noise? so yeah. earnest oh, yeah. that you can't get mad. No, you can't. You can get exasperated. You can't, you can't I get mean, mad. I know, I know better at this like, point to, yeah. to go in there looking for a quick... Yes, in and out, Yelena experience. Not going to happen. This is true. You get sucked in. And, that's, and charmed. Yeah, in and a totally. Weird way. Yeah, she's very, she's very disarming once once you get to. Uh, she's very conversational. You know, yeah, she's very casual. I mean, she's like, she's, I've heard, she's like come up to me in hotel lobbies and told the strangest, dirtiest jokes with no prompting. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, and no one else does that. Yeah. And no one else should. Let's be clear, no. I'm not asking for this, but, <laughs> you know, it happens. It happens. Yeah. Anyway. The light, the joy, the glitter, the queen. The empress. The empress, Yelena Yankovic. My favorite Yelena thing, I wish we could end, speaking of gifts, I wish we could end the segment with a gift. There's an incredible gift from like a WTA Happy Holidays video where they're all saying <laughs> Happy Holidays and it is Yelena sitting on a, like a throne and then she waves and the WTA logo splashes across the screen. <laughs> it's you, an amazing you gift. You know this gift? I know this gift. It's amazing. It's the best. We'll try and find it. Yeah. We'll try and find it and tweet it. Yeah. If we can. We'll tweet it with a teaser of this. It'll be pretty yeah. great. So that was number 15. <laughs> Roberto Batista Goot and Elena Yankovic. So we're going to close out with another rant rave corner of the show to see this uh, one out. Courtney, why don't we start with you this week? Do you have anything that you would like to talk about? To get off your off your chest and your mind. Unburden yourself now, please. So many things. So many things. But I'm going to rave Okay. again this week. As the season is, not the season, but as the year is winding down, it's a time for reflection. Time to really take in, you know, what the last 365 days at, in a few weeks have really given us. And so it's also the season for lists. And I kind of love reading lists, even mm-hmm. though I hate writing lists. Reading lists I, are the best. 
reading lists are the best because you just get the like year and review lists are great right because all because it's three things right either it's oh good this critic and i are simpatico and validated my taste in x y or z great i feel good about myself Mm -hmm. b oh this person has no idea what they're talking about that was a stupid book movie music cd anything oh this is terrible you know but it's fun to be mad sometimes always so you still get something out of that or c you find something new that maybe you didn't know existed i find that particularly um with book lists okay because there's just so many books that i feel like the season and i don't read book reviews every week or whatever so i feel like the season or the year end lists are a good way for me to discover books that i did not know existed Hmm. so that's been really great. But for me, I'm going to focus on movies. And so for my rave, my rant rave rave section, I'm just going to list off five movies that I really, really loved in 2014. They are my favorite movies. And I want to give them all hugs and just love them and give them to all the rest of you. All right, so go. if you haven't seen them, I'm just going to reel them off relatively quickly. I think my favorite movie of the year was Grand, Buda- Grand Budapest Hotel. That was really good. Absolutely loved it. Ray Fiennes should win all the awards for his portrayal of Gustav. Just great, fun. It's Wes Anderson at his absolute best. It's 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 got some warmth. It's still got its quirky tweeness of it all, but it's also laugh out loud funny. So I really liked Grand Budapest Hotel. I saw that on the plane back from London. Mm, did you like it? I loved it, and it was such a good airplane movie because it was. Yeah. it made me feel like warm inside and mm-hmm. like i had a soul and yeah. usually being on airplanes makes me feel like a you know less than human right so no i watch it like all the time like i buy it, i bought it i have like the the you know a copy of it on my laptop and mm-hmm. if i have nothing to do or if i can't think of something to watch or listen to i just kind of run it in the background there's just a rhythm to it i don't know it just feels like a nice warm cup of hot cocoa there you go i love it so grand Budapest hotel boyhood watch it Amazing, incredible. Boyhood, Richard I've never Linklater. heard of. Tell me more. Oh, really? Yeah. Directed by Richard Richard Linklater, who did all the before sunsets and rise. You do love those. And I know you know. I know you know. I love those slacker, um, all those movies. But basically, Boyhood is a movie that should fail, and it totally worked. Richard Linklater basically um, filmed the movie over the course of twelve years using the same cast, and from a boy who I think starts out at maybe six or seven years old. And every summer they would film scenes for this movie. And it's supposed to track this kid's childhood. Wow. Um, all the way through to when he goes to college. That's impressive and, scale. Yeah. If you think about all the different ways that it could have gone wrong. I mean, what if the kid that you chose to do it turned out to be a druggie or couldn't finish the movie? or He's a terrible actor. A terrible actor. All these sorts of things. Anyway, it is absolutely phenomenal. Watch it. It just is riveting, even though there is no plot. But there's kind of things to think about. I don't know. It's 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 a movie I'm still unpacking, okay. but I loved it. Okay. So Boyhood. Under the Skin, which I just watched this week, starring Scarlett Johansson. Totally creepy movie, but the most original thing that I saw all year. Just really interesting, I thought. And okay. a movie that kind of stuck with me. So I would highly recommend that. Guardians of the Galaxy. Most fun I had at the movie theater all year. Blast. Loved it. And then Gone Girl, which I have... Some complaints about, which are related to spoilers about how certain things were portrayed compared to the book, which I loved. I loved the book. I thought the book was better than the movie. Okay. But I'm a big Fincher fan. I thought he did a really good job. And um, yeah. I thought the, I thought the movie was pretty good. I've seen I read the book, seen the movie. I thought it was pretty pretty accurate for the most part. I'll, we'll talk after about what you're describing. Yeah, we'll we'll talk, we'll talk about it offline. Yeah. We'll talk offline. 
Okay. But yeah, okay. so those are my five best movies of 2014. And I will add that I haven't seen Birdman or Foxcatcher, which are two that I do really, really, really want to see before the season. I've heard so. good things about Foxcatcher, too. Yeah. So there you, go. there you go. All right. My thing is slightly less high art. I want to talk about the recently released fourth One Direction album. <laughs> and I used to What's talk- it called? It's called Four. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you so much. But you do your thing. But what did you say? Nothing. Go. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. No, I. it's tough because just even the fact they called it four lets me know that the band had no plans of sticking around this long and they ran out of ideas a long time ago. It's an interesting thing. Cause I used to talk. Or about, they think they're as big as Led Zeppelin, but continue. I guess so. But I don't think that's it. I, I think that there's something interesting because as people who are long-time listeners to the show embarrassingly know i used to talk about one direction a lot more on the show than i do now and that's because like any boy band one direction has an expiration date which was in the past i mean boy bands never make it that far and they're designed they're designed not to they're designed to be creepily young people people don't realize how young they are when they start fed to people even younger than them who inevitably grow up and grow into more significant music and One Direction is still sort of around. This album debuted at number one. They're hanging around being themselves. And I think we talked about this briefly in Europe at some point when we saw them do something. Like, this is not a fun time to be One Direction. Like, if you were a, one of the five people in this group, like, it can't be fun right now. Because you're so pointless. But at the same time, this album is remarkable in that it's trying to keep them alive through this weird shift to like Mumford and Sons type music, maybe a little bit more like Noah and the Whale-ish, but trying to be like a lot of instrument based and very trying to be anthemic and stuff. And they're writing a lot more of their own songs, which is a terrible idea. Anyway, the whole thing is interesting. I just find the, the concept of what these people are supposed to do with the rest of their lives. Very interesting because they came, they were like the least organic creation possible they were formed by producers on a reality show they didn't even show up to the show together they were all people who got allegedly rejected as solo participants in the show and as a scrap heap got put into a group and now what do they do i don't know i will say there's one decent song on the album called night changes which is not bad the rest of it's pretty bad if you want good one direction which (laughs) no one really wants but if you want better one direction go back to first couple albums stole my heart I wish much better. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they're still here and that the road before them is littered with the corpses of boy bands past. And there's, I don't know if there are lessons to be learned from how other ones die. And I don't know if any boy band that doesn't play instruments or can't even do a simple harmony can ever succeed into becoming a man band on any level or if they should. But I just, I don't know. I think they're an interesting reflection. This awkwardly aging boy band on the our culture today i have two comments Please. slash questions yeah go for it first question uh-huh. what do you make of novak Djokovic's bffery with one of the one directioners that i don't know oh the one of the tennis this year in london yeah like they tweet about each other all the time like novak oh, like, was like yeah he sent like a tweet this week or last week that was like hey congrats on the new album bro it was like crazy. It's weird. weird. So that's question one. First, I know he's met a couple different, so I'm not sure I should look and see which one it was, but he's met a couple different One Direction members. Liam 
who's the one who can kind of sing, and uh, Niall, who's the blonde Irish one. Yeah, they both come to London different times the last couple of years. And they were both the two I will spin off into that. I don't know what I think of Novak doing. I think that's a little weird and creepy. I want to say it sounds like a pedophile, but I realize that the One Direction people are all completely adults by now. But even still, they seem like an arrested development. Even though Novak's doing nothing sexual with them, obviously, I think. Uh, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's pretty weird to, to interact with them. It'd be like bros. I've just never used the word bro with a One Direction <laughs> they are just not bros. They are just not bros. Now, go ahead. Speaking yeah, of Liam and Niall, Liam and Niall were at Wimbledon this year, and I was clued in a few days before they were going to be there, and I was told, like, okay, if you're at, like, this place at this time on Thursday, be there, and they will be there, and you can see them. And so I was, obviously, because when am I ever going to get a chance to see One Direction people again? And I thought about, like, saying something to them, but I had nothing to say. And that's, I think, I knew when their time was over. <laughs> But like, what was so, I going to say to them? Like, if I because it happened some a, lot, a fair amount actually in tennis where you'll like be near some famous person who's yeah. there for the tennis. Like, I think Courtney for you probably the most relevant one is Gwen Stefani. I was going to say shows up a bunch of tennis events, and you're obviously and we are both, but you especially are big fans of her, and no doubt, specifically yeah. no doubt, not supposed, not really Gwen and her solo solo album, but whatever. Okay, does she have a third one coming out by the way? I think she does. I right? heard that she did, and I heard it's not good. But I really I listen. I don't own any of her solo albums. Oh, Maybe the first, the first one's not, one. first one's not bad. The first one's okay. Yeah. But, like, I'm a No Doubt fan. Okay. And I worship the Gwen of No Doubt. There you go. That's totally fair. And she would be happy with that, I'm sure. Yes. Um, but, yeah. Um, and almost always, almost always, I completely ignore the celebrities or just sort of awkwardly look at them and then move on. Uh, the only person I've ever spoken to was some random Swedish Eurovision hopeful who been on the national selection show a few times. He was there randomly at the Wimbledon final as a guest of Jonas Bjorkman. <laughs> and I saw him sitting there. His name is Mon Zelmerlo. And he was sitting there and I was like, oh my God, what are you doing here? This is so weird. Why are you here? And so I literally just wanted to know why he was there. And that's why I said like, hello. Um, okay. Other than that, yeah. I didn't okay. know what to say to them. Second question, go for it. So second question is, okay, you were saying that like they were like designed to fail like, Des- like designed to they, expire, like... I think. I oh, okay, maybe, That's more but what like, I meant. Yeah. because the thing is, is like, like with as most people know who follow me on Twitter, I'm kind of really into K-pop, yeah, Korean pop music, and every single Korean pop band, all of those K-pop bands are manufactured bands, yeah, like they have effectively, like music, like academy, not academies, but like record labels are effectively academies, and they pluck these people out. These people don't know each other. They throw them together. They make these bands as they want to make them. They train them. They teach them how to dance. Like all these sorts of things. But Twelve so people every... in one group. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Super Junior. Amazing. That's more than two American bands. Oh yeah. Boy bands. That's twelve. That's, that's three. Anyways. That's three. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, but like they don't fail. I mean, they, and now my question from that, I wonder though, and I'm not really posing it to you. I'm just asking generally. Okay. is like, is that like a, a talent issue? Is that a systems issue? Is that a culture issue? Well, hold uh, on. Do, do the K-pop bands last like more than four or five years? That's what I'm talking about. Oh, I'm saying, well, I'm saying that they just, I'm just saying that a not. boy band inherently, it's a very short window of opportunity. True. And the best ones can capitalize on that, like the Backstreets, the NSYNCs, the One Direction in terms of successes in that league, probably, um, and get, you know, three, maybe four, not usually four, usually three albums out in that time. You know, New Kids on the Block had three albums in one year. Yeah. That's how fast they were trying to, like, milk that, how, how quickly they knew the expiration was coming. 
and also the difference. I mean, that was how the music industry was run back then. Yeah. It was a, it was it was it was a little bit more album based as opposed to touring based, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, but yeah, like there, like if you look back, I mean, bands back in the day, like re- you know, released albums a bunch of times. Yeah. Now, like if a band releases one album every two years, it's like, or like more than two albums every like four years, you're like, whoa, dude, Slow calm down. down. Yeah, you're diluting you yourself. Gotta... Yeah. Right, because the record deals aren't giving enough, aren't paying as much money for the actual album, so they have to supplement like all the money the band makes is via touring. So you have to like go tour to make money, as opposed to, oh, I just sold this album because nobody's getting paid for music because everybody's stealing right. it. So right. no, I was just saying in terms of not designed to fail. I just think that One Direction by now should be further decomposed than it is. That's, I find it unsettling. Like How by, many albums do you think they will have? I mean, if their number four album calls four, they've used <laughs> it number one. I think they have to have at least two left in them, right? Ugh, that's so gross. I know, which is not it's not it's not natural for a boy band to have six albums. And by now, Harry should have been solo and stuff. It was this is all wrong. Uh, anyway, those were my thoughts. I was listening to the album this week and I was getting way too existential about it. And I thought I would share that with the world. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. You're welcome. And we thank you for sharing us with your world. Does that make sense? Nope. nope. Didn't make any sense whatsoever. Let's we'll stick with that. If you want to follow us at other times when you're not listening, you can do so by following us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis, as well as our individual accounts, uh, 40 Deuce Twits and Ben Rothenberg. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast, and subscribe to our show on iTunes or your RSS podcasting app of choice to get new episodes downloaded to you immediately and automatically so you don't have to go looking for them. And while you're there, you can leave us reviews on all those various platforms, iTunes as well, and we appreciate that. Question for you, Ben. Yes, Courtney. What is your podcast manager of choice? I right now use actually my iPhone for almost all of it. I use the podcast app. Okay, so you use the Apple podcast app. I do, yeah. Okay. Just pretty boring. Do you use a different one? I do. I use Downcast. Okay. Which is a separate app. It's just a little bit. For a while, for whatever reason, the Apple. I used to use the Apple Podcast one, and it just was really glitchy for me for about like six months. Yeah. So it's I improved. finally. It's gotten better. Uh, yeah, I finally abandoned it and went with Downcast, which is good. It syncs across different. The syncing is not as 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 seamless as with the Apple. No surprise, but yeah. but yeah, it's good. There you go. So I was just wondering. No, there are all sorts of good apps out there. I'm just pretty pretty vanilla that unfortunately thank you guys for listening however you may do so and we'll talk to you next time bye guys bye bye kind of has to be one direction doesn't it yeah it really does one one direction night cat night i can't say this title one direction night changes as your sounds so gross